Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello. Hello. I'm Noreen Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. And we'd like to welcome you to this special episode of Postcards from Midlife. We're back between Series 2 and the upcoming Series 3 with this extra episode to mark World Menopause Day, Sunday the 18th of October. Lorraine and I have learned so much about menopause and perimenopause since we started this podcast back in January, thanks to all the fantastic experts and women we've spoken to over the last 10 months. Yes, as you may or may not know, there are 13 million women in the UK either going through this or about to go through it. And if you're anything like us, you won't have a clue what's been going on as you start to feel like you're unravelling. There are apparently 34, well at least 34 symptoms of perimenopause and these can range from hot flushes, which you tend to hear about but not all women get, right the way through to brain fog, low mood, tinnitus, aching bones, iron deficiency, sore teeth, poor sleep, hair loss. The listening hair, weight gain, um, and all sorts of other things that you probably will not have linked to perimenopause. Now, that's sad enough as it is, but those symptoms will cause one in five women to leave their jobs um, because they're untreated symptoms of the menopause. And 90% of women will experience some symptoms of the menopause. And that isn't just hot flushes, although that seems to be the main narrative. And a staggering 66% of women are offered antidepressants by GPs instead of hormone replacement therapy to tackle their lack of estrogen and testosterone at this stage of their lives. And many women are wrongly refused HRT by ill-informed GPs. Yeah, it really is a minefield for, for all of us going through it. So if you're struggling right now, you have come to the right place because our mission is to help you find your midlife mojo. And in this episode, we've collated all the answers our experts and guests have given to some of the most pressing menopause questions, which we asked in series one and two of Postcards from Midlife. And if you'd like to hear more, you can still listen to all the episodes of series one and two of Postcards midlife from the times radio app or on your usual podcast provider so let's get started first things first we wanted to share how some of our guests have experienced their perimenopause and also to sort of convey how confusing and bewildering that is. And I think listening to this will reassure you, it's not just you and you're not alone. First up, we're going to hear from best-selling novelist Marion Keyes, who told us about a major depressive episode in her 40s, which led her to seek psychiatric help. And then her reflections now on whether or not that might have actually been her perimenopause, which she, like so many women, knew nothing about. A lot of the time, my age isn't something that I think about. I'm well into the menopause, utterly devoted to HRT. And other things have started happening. Like I have really bad arthritis in my fingers, which... How annoying. That seems so unfair. 
Yeah, are you doing a lot of all the typing? Yeah, I do, but my mother has it. I mean, it, I inherited it. But I used to always, you know, with the arrogance of youth, I used to think, hmm, right, so she has arthritis. Well, I'm not going to get it. You know, I just, I thought that I could arrogance my way out of it. I could just decide, <laughs> no, no, yes. no arthritis for me. But no, you don't get the say in these things. So you were talking about being devoted to HRT. Um, can you tell us what, what was going on for you in terms of symptoms or what was happening that you went to the doctor to get some help? Well, I was 45 and it was the year that I, I can't even describe it really, tumbled into the most awful state of mind. I mean, they called it a major depressive episode. To me, it felt like a nervous breakdown. That isn't a medical term any longer. and. I went to my doctor to refer me to a psychiatrist and she did, but she also said, well, let's check your hormone levels and, and see where they are. And she said it was really, really hard to check if a person had started menopause um, or if they were perimenopausal because apparently this, the tests are not very reliable. But anyway, it came back and it said that I had, you know, dropped estrogen in a fairly dramatic fashion. So, I mean, she um, put me on HRT then. And it's funny, it was only kind of years later that I began to wonder if, you know, I've never found a reason for why I suddenly kind of fell off the cliff. I do wonder if the appalling way I felt had something to do with the, the kind of the sudden drop in these hormones yes. that had been like part of my body for like three decades, you know, and I see it now in younger women, like I see that their anxiety levels go through the roof or rage, like rage is suddenly of oh, the rage. Because, yeah, because there isn't enough estrogen to dampen down our natural testosterone anymore. And nobody knows about the menopause. You know, women are not given, there's still so little information available, you know, that women are going through all this weird stuff in their 40s. And there's nobody to say, listen, you're all right, really. It's just it's just hormones have gone haywire and there are ways to help you if you want that help. So, Trish, I think what's great about Marion, well, everything's great about Marion, obviously, <laughs> but I think what's really good is, is her complete devotion to HRT, um, hormone replacement yeah. therapy. Now, we know it doesn't work for everybody, but we know it's much, much safer um, than it's believed to be because of a lot of misinformation around it. And actually, we've got the facts on that, haven't we, mm. later on in this show with Professor Michael Baum. But it's good to hear Marion talk about how it changed her life, really, and she became herself yeah, again. Exactly. I think it is so easy to lose sight of who you were. And these, these symptoms creep and creep and creep. And they can, of course, get very extreme. But when you um, start on HRT, if that's the path you go down, and you start feeling like yourself again, it's just like it's like the, the blinds go up somehow. And I yeah. think it's wonderful to hear Marion feeling like she's got herself back and she's found herself again. Which means she'll write more books, which is oh yeah, good for <laughs> all of us. <laughs> Everybody benefits. It's a win-win situation. Next up is TV presenter Anna Richardson, who told us the questions she's asking herself in the run-up to her 50th birthday this year. Her experiences of HRT, which haven't been as straightforward as, as they have for some people, and also the really tragic story of her grandmother during menopause. <laughs> So 
So a few months ago, Sue turned 50 and she was really having a bad time with the whole thing. Uh, and I was a bit like, oh, get over it. You're going to be upset. What, you know, what's wrong with turning 50? So deal with it. Now that I'm on that approach road, I must confess that I'm finding it hard. Mm-hmm. I've got so many massive questions about what have I achieved in my life? What else do I want to achieve? Where have I gone wrong? Struggling with menopause. Uh, why didn't I have children? Uh, what else do I want to do in my career? How am I going to make my dreams come true? Why haven't I got the perfect life? All of that kind of thing. So I've been perimenopausal, I'd say, for about the last five years. Um, I have seen literally every single specialist that's out there, apart from Dr. Louise Newson, actually, um, who I I must go and see. Um, But I've seen everybody. I've tried everything. I have been on the estrogen patches. I've been on the estrogen gel. I have been on the eutrogestin progesterone. I've been on DHEA. I've been on testosterone. So I've had the whole sort of symphony of HRT. And I'm not sure that it made me feel any better. So I'm currently not on anything. However, I recognize that I'm starting to feel possibly a bit worse. So my hair's getting a bit thinner. My skin is definitely more dull. I'm definitely getting more wrinkly. I'm definitely getting the sort of unitum Mm. thing where you become sort of built like a brick. So I I just wonder whether I've just not found the right little cocktail yet. Mm -hmm. We hadn't heard the word perimenopause until two years ago. Did you know midlife was a thing that everything would change? Because it was all a complete shock to me. Turning 50 was a shock. Being depressed was a shock needing to take hormones was a shock and I felt like no one had told me about this and it I, the sisterhood had somehow let me down by not explaining this was coming towards me did you know it was coming towards you put it this way I should have known that it was coming but I think you're right that we haven't talked about it enough and we don't talk about it enough in families and the reason I say that that I should have known it was coming my grandmother killed herself when she was our age mm. And my mother, when I was a teenager and she was this age, she was also very unstable. And I've always put that down to sort of, you know, mental health issues. But actually, Mm. my mother has said to me before that when her own mother took her own life, she was around 50, 52. And mum thinks that she was going through a very, very bad menopause. And at the time, if you think about it, this would have been, what, the late 50s? There was no help for women then. So I just think my poor grandma must have been going through all the things that we've experienced to a, a greater or lesser degree. She must have been very, very depressed very confused her husband had my, my grandfather had left her for another woman and I think she was desperate as you've highlighted on on the podcast I think it's a it's a national scandal that GPs yeah. don't have standardized training when it comes to the menopause HRT and also mental health that is a national scandal because too many of us have just been pushed aside put on antidepressants or told that you know you're unstable or that you're mad or whatever it happens to be so you know I I think that's that that is a national disgrace so I think what's fascinating about listening to Anna is this great change that occurs during midlife I mean her whole life completely changed in her Mm. 40s when she fell in love with a woman after being in a heterosexual relationship for such a long time that's a story we hear quite a lot isn't it and you'll hear a bit more of that as it comes up there is an enormous 
kind of appetite for a second act or something new so you know mm. getting that midlife mojo back and being re-energized and yeah, discovering something it, about yourself you didn't know it's that point in your life it's a point where you really do need to kind of sit back and, and assess um and she Anna has this really good she calls it the rocking chair exercise um which is a, a way of kind of assessing where you are in your life and how happy you are and if you if you want to hear more about that and um also about her relationship with her partner sue perkins please do go back and listen to that episode in series two now all the way back in series one we talked to meg matthews who was kind of one of those it girls of the 90s um but she has been a leading light and a leading advocate for getting the menopause talked about now and getting women to find the right help she has a great website where you can find lots and lots of information for free and she told us what happened to her during her menopause journey I'm lucky to say, ladies, that I am now coming up to nearly 54, so I'm nearly six, seven years into it. The menopause to me was all I could relate to was you didn't have periods and you had a hot flush. The truth is I didn't even know what the word perimenopause meant or what the menopause was. I don't think many women do. And they don't, absolutely. Those two symptoms, I never had a hot flush and I had the marina coil. So my symptoms were overwhelmness with life, fearful of life, foggy brain, night sweats and fatigue and couldn't sleep but you had like chronic fatigue yeah like you went to bed for three months yeah three months and also i had the anxiety was so through the roof that i went to a really dark place i might not even be here today it was that dark Mm. for me i kept going back to the gp and back to the gp and when you go and you burst into tears and you can't cope with life you antidepressants that's it. So antidepressant after antidepressants was what I was given. So I had like three years on antidepressants, which I now do not take. And I now I'm supported by CBD oil. You know, I was really at wit's end. And I just was like, you know, what am I going to do? I'm a recovering alcoholic. So I have to say I was lucky enough to be able to be in an AA meeting and to share that was bloody going mad, okay? And I really couldn't cope with life anymore. Now, as I walked out the meeting, this lady took me to one side and went, look, take my number, you're going through the menopause. And I was like, no, I'm not. And she said, Meg, you really are. As the penny sort of dropped, you know, when you just sort of know, something was like, yeah. So Meg actually has a, a new book out on the menopause. And Lorraine, I think you were involved in that. Do you want to just yes. tell us about that? Yes. Um, the book is called The New Hot, Taking on the Menopause with Attitude and Style. And it's really Meg's journey, her personal journey. But there's quite a few experts in there. And I talk about my journey. And lots of women give tips on how to live your best life during the menopause. Well, when she joined us in the studio uh, to record the podcast, she did bring us some of the products in her because she's also got a kind of... It's I hate this phrase, but a feminine hygiene range and lots of sort of nice products for uh, having sex, sex, lube, all of that sort of stuff. And can I just say, Lorraine, you didn't take any of it and I took all of it. What what does that say about us? Well, I don't know. I used to edit Cosmopolitan because I've got (laughs) cupboards and cupboards of it. You've got (laughs) 10-year-old lube sitting in the cover. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
on a more serious note, I'm sure you've all been nodding your heads along in recognition with Marion, Anna and Meg's story. Um, but we heard lots of stories about women in midlife as we recorded series one and series two. And um, one of the most shocking midlife stories we heard came from uh, the menopause doctor, Dr. Louise Newson, who runs a free website full of fact and information about the menopause. Now she's treated thousands of women, but she told us about the one case that really stuck in her mind. And it's the case that motivates her really at work. When I started my clinic, this lady came to see me and she was a teacher, teenage children, everything fine. Suddenly her period stopped and within days she felt dreadful, completely lost sense of reality. She was very low, very depressed. She ended up being sectioned into um, a, a psychiatric hospital and told she had bipolar. So she was given very heavy duty drugs and ECT, so electroconvulsive therapy, oh my God. 20 cycles, and it didn't help. This carried on and for four years she then became housebound and her teenage sons couldn't cope with her because it was so difficult. She was really desperate and, um, you know, I've done a lot of psychiatry, helped all sorts of people, but I was really shocked by how many symptoms she had that were classic menopausal symptoms, flushes, sweats, you know, all the things we've talked about and this huge psychological problem. So, but I knew her future health, HRT would benefit her so I gave her HRT and then a few weeks later she emailed me to say she, it's the first time she'd slept for four years and she'd oh already goodness. started to feel better um, and when I reviewed her she it's taken a while for her to fully improve but she's so much better and she told me then that she'd actually written the suicide note and she had planned her death because she knew that if I couldn't help her she couldn't carry on the way she oh was because goodness. her life was so awful. You know, it's so sad because there is a peak in suicide rate in the early 50s in the UK. And it's no coincidence that the menopause is, you know, the average age is in the early 50s. And, you know, she's very extreme. But I have seen countless women who have been suicidal. They've had suicidal thoughts, which have improved with HRT. So one of the reasons we started this podcast was to get the right information out there for women in midlife. So women going through the perimenopause or the menopause. We were absolutely shocked when we started to investigate this over two years ago, how little information there is out there and how little women know and how little GPs know. That's all beginning to change. But we also set up a Facebook group, a private Facebook group, so that we were able to give out some advice and support for women looking for very small details and a lot of help that we can give immediately. So, Trish, it's been brilliant, our Facebook group, hasn't it? We've oh, heard some really know, lovely I love stories. It. Yeah, some really um, kind of poignant ones, uh, some funny ones, um, and everybody offering experiences and advice and that feeling that. God, it's not just you. It's not just me unraveling and going mad has been so helpful. Um, I thought I'd just read a thread started by Liz, who says, please talk to me about the extremely low mood and anger that seem to constantly collide. And then rage, the rage. The rage. As, as they do. So I can feel them wrapping another fatty layer around my <laughs> middle. I'm back to my GP on Friday to get my Mirena coil changed. 
um, its overdue replacement, sadly, yet another COVID casualty, and hoping that we'll put some balance back as I feel like my HRT isn't touching the mood stuff right now. Only feeling good when swimming at the moment with my head underwater and all the life noise gone. Any words of support, wisdom or suggestions would be very welcome. So Liz, I think she sort of nails it on the head there, doesn't she, really? And she's had lots of lovely comments. And I think that thing of just not feeling alone and also that thing that we don't have to put up with it there's a very Mm. simple cheap prescription that for the majority of women will be very very helpful and change Mm. their lives there there's there's some funny threads that i quite like um there was one about booze we all know about midlife and booze don't we it's really Mm. annoying um somebody just put up alcohol anyone else apart from me finding it hard to tolerate it anymore it wakes me up in the middle of the night and I'm covered in sweat at 3 a.m I'm so sad as I really enjoy a glass of wine (laughs) any suggestions um I think we tackle everything don't we from not because you you can't drink um during midlife it's like having a superpower taken away your whole system and metabolism has changed because of the lack of estrogen so Mm. your ability to tolerate wine we talked to Jane Clark about this nutritionist Mm. didn't we yeah ability to tolerate wine Wine, beer, anything. Um, she did have some very diminished. sensible advice, which I know it's very difficult on a Friday night when you're tearing your hair out and it's 6 p.m. and you just want to crack into the wine. It's like <laughs> she says, wait till you're eating and make sure you eat something before you drink, which um is a bit sensible, but I have tried it does work. It does work. It just means you can have a few more glasses without feeling horrific. Is it being a grown-up, Trish? Is that what it is? <laughs> it's taken a while. Is it isn't that what we've discovered? I think so. So what is actually happening to our hormones that's causing all this chaos? We spoke to women's health specialist, Dr. Shazadi Harper, to explain the perimenopause. People hear that term menopause and they just don't know what it means that that time leading up to it. So we know that the average age of menopause in this country is 51. That's when your period stops. That's when your period stops. So what the menopause means is it's your last period. But you can only say that a year afterwards. So when you've had a year of no period, you can look back and say, oh, that's when my menopause happened. And the average age in this country for that is 51. Right. And that time leading up to it is called the perimenopause and that can be four to eight years. But on average, again, most women sort of delve into it or dive into it at the age of 47 and a half. But I have to give a few caveats to that really because lots of factors can actually affect yeah. that average age. If you're a woman of Southeast Asian origin, i.e. sort of Indian, Pakistani, it could be 46 and a half. If you're a woman who's not had any children, it could be two years earlier. If you are a woman who's had children under the age of 28, it can be two years earlier. Our female hormones are oestrogen and progesterone. They're produced from our ovaries and we also produce some testosterone. And so what happens from our sort of 40s onwards is our ovaries aren't working as well or they're not producing those hormones in the same kind of quantities as they were before. we don't need them, is that what? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a decline in fertility. I suppose, yeah. yes, we don't need them as much, but we do need them for other parts of our body. And I think everybody assumes that we're just our ovaries. But I often say women are more than just their ovaries. And those estrogen receptors are in our brain. You know, they affect our collagen, you know, our skin, our hair. And a lot of women, they're not really aware that their mood could be affected by their hormones. And women who've not experienced anxiety before in the past suddenly feel anxious or are waking up with palpitations. What a panic attack. Yeah. 
I think, I think when women enter into their 40s or women in general, I think we're so used to just putting up with things and dealing with things and we kind of put it down to life, you know, maybe children, partners, work, you know, all of those kind of factors. So I think sometimes these symptoms of perimenopause can come along and you're not sort of putting two and two together. You're feeling tired, but you might think, oh, it's because I'm doing a school run or my children are going off to university. Well, your GP's not putting two and two together. No, that's, that's also the case. Now, GPs don't put two and two together. And that's because GPs don't get much training no, in it at all. GPs get very little training. So you can't, I don't want to feel like we're blaming GPs all the time, no. but it's, it's because they, don't, they aren't given the information that's needed and there's a lot more available now. So I, I think when you go into your GP surgery, I think you, know, you talk about it, you need to express what's going on and maybe say, look, I, I don't think I'm depressed because there is something called menopause mood disorder. And that doesn't mean to say you're depressed as it would be described in normal medical terms. And I think, you know, you really need a bit of time with your GP. So maybe not just walk away after one appointment, maybe make a double appointment. Good point. Um, and write I, it down? Should you write down? I would say write them down because mm-hmm. you've got 10 minutes and actually you've got probably a bit less than that. So if you write it down and you can go in. In my practice in Oxford with my other partners, I used to give them a menopause symptom checker that if a woman came in, yeah. is to hand it over to them so she could go home and almost do a bit of homework before she came to see you. So I would say to some women, look, if you're not sure what's going on maybe do a little bit of homework if you can or at least write it down so that when you're there because maybe your GP won't know what's going on that you can almost try and direct the conversation a little bit the nice guidelines say if you're under if you're over the age of 45 and you've got symptoms then forget the numbers you know treat the woman treat you treat your symptoms and you're right you know if you are perimenopausal and you go in one day your blood test which is the fsh follicle stimulating hormone test um that could be perfectly normal today but yet you could be feeling you know a lot of perimenopausal symptoms um but then if you repeat it again and that is what you're meant to do is repeat it again in six weeks time it could be very different and it can vary and fluctuate because that's exactly what's going on in the perimenopause your hormones are fluctuating and they're gradually declining. So the blood test is not an accurate indication of what's going on. The only time it's useful is if you've got a Mirena coil fitted, which is a progesterone-only coil, if you've got Depo, um, which is a progesterone-only implant, or if you're on the mini pill. So that's the only time that it's important because your symptoms may be masked because on those forms of contraception, you may not know when your periods have stopped. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So that was a really great overview from Shazadi. It really explained things clearly, I think. But there's a lot to think about, isn't there? And it's not always as easy when you've got brain fog <laughs> yes. or some of the other symptoms going on. Yes, I think there's a lot to remember and a lot to know. But I think if you keep it simple... If you are in your 40s, this is for the majority of women, you are very likely to be in or about to hit perimenopause. So menopause is is after your last period, which usually happens early 50s. So perimenopause is about 10 years before 
you hit your last periods, but you don't you don't get a medal or a you don't know when your last period is. You don't. There know isn't a siren going. that goes yes, off that tells you it's kind of alarm happen. saying you are finally mm. brilliant. Um, so. 10 years before that, you would have started to experience some of the symptoms of perimenopause because your estrogen and your testosterone will be dropping. And when things start to feel not right, when you have a low mood, you might be angry all the time or that you're overwhelmed and you can't cope. You might have an anxiety attack. You might be more anxious than normal or you might be experiencing some of those physical symptoms that we talked about. It's worth keeping a note and thinking that you don't have to put up with that. You can go to the doctor and you can find out what is going wrong. There is a lot of help out there. Um, on Meg Matthews' website, there are a lot of details about the symptoms. Um, Shazadi has them on her website at the Harper Clinic. And Dr. Louise Newton has actually written the Haynes Manual, which is a guide to the menopause. It has everything in it, including what you should ask your GP. And one of the best things I learned in that perimenopause phase was that if you go to the GP with all of these symptoms and you struggle to get this across and you're offered antidepressants because most women are offered it as the first line of prescription to help, take someone with you um, and especially take someone mm. with you if you go back because you're not thinking straight and you want to get all that information across. Um, there's a lot to discuss and there's a lot to unpick around menopause and perimenopause and the prescription of HRT. But one of the things that is not widely known about HRT is that it is a preventative medicine. It is off heart disease is a huge killer mm. of women over 40. And HRT is prescribed to help women with heart disease. It's also prescribed to help with the symptoms of osteoporosis and to limit the effect of osteoporosis, which is caused by the huge decrease in estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. A lot of the misinformation around HRT is based on a survey that was done uh, around 2002-2003 of much older women. Um, I think they were 50 plus, most of the majority were over 60, and it was regarding hormones that are now not prescribed and not taken in the way they were when that survey was done. So um, you can see why GPs would perhaps still be fearful of um, prescribing it because there's so much misinformation around it. Um, but the hormones that are taken now, the body identical um, HRT hormones, are perfectly safe. You obviously have to talk to your GP and take all your medical history into account and your family history into account. But there's no reason why it shouldn't be prescribed to you. And there is no natural way of replacing estrogen in your body, um, according to Louise Newson, who I've interviewed many, many times for my work at the Sunday Times and also um, in various places around the country. So look at that. There is a very good book, um, which Liz Earle has written as well, called The Good Menopause, which explains it in great detail. So that really should make you feel a little bit safer about taking HRT. And you're taking HRT now, Trish, aren't you, since we started the podcast? Yeah, and you yeah, have a absolutely. history of breast and cancer I, in the Yes, family. and I was kind of very nervous about it. And, um, you know, it is, it's that sort of question of balancing quality of life, depending on the symptoms yes. that you have from your menopause, protecting your heart. I've also got osteopenia, which is the start of osteoporosis. Mm. So, so I've had to really, it's a, it's a question of sort of weighing up the pros and, and cons of it. And, um, and I decided to go with it. And at this point, I'm hugely glad that I did. But we've now got um, Professor Michael Baum, haven't we, who is the a global breast cancer specialist, who is yes. going to give us the facts on all of this.
as a spin-off from my interest in breast cancer, I became an expert on hormone replacement therapy. In fact, I was running an HRT clinic pretty much for breast cancer patients. And let me get certain things straight. Yes. Oestrogen does not cause breast cancer. Watch my lips. Oestrogen does not cause breast cancer. Now, simple things. The highest incidence of breast cancer is the older you are. So it's inverse correlation. The lower your estrogens, the greater the incidence of breast cancer. The highest level of estrogens is during pregnancy. Right. And pregnancy seems to protect you from breast cancer to an extent. So there's the paradox. When I started uh, treating patients with advanced breast cancer before the days of modern uh, drugs like tamoxifen, we used estrogen and estrogen would reduce the size of the cancer. So estrogen does not cause breast cancer. Now, just recently, in fact, in December, we had the latest update of the uh, Women's Health Initiative, which is the largest randomized controlled trial of HRT or ERT. ERT is estrogen replacement therapy. HRT is the combination of estrogen and progesterone. So we got right up to date, uh, 17-year follow-up, very mature follow-up. And it shows unequivocally estrogen protects from breast cancer. So if you're on estrogen alone, then you will have a lower risk of breast cancer. Right. If you are on the combination, there is an increased risk. And in relative terms, um, it m- may be two times. That's relative risk. And it's relative risk of incidence, not deaths from breast cancer. Bearing in mind that 90% of these breast cancers are cured, so the excess mortality from combined HRT over 10 years is 0.9%. HRT reduces the risk of dying from other causes. Most important is osteoporosis. HRT, ERT works. And HRT reduces the incidence of dementia. Cardiovascular disease, we think there's a modest reduction in the risk of cardiovascular disease. So if you do the trade-off and you've got quality of life, unequivocal, length of life, zero-sum game. So my default position is why shouldn't this woman have HRT? Not... Why should she? Why shouldn't she? And that's now, there what you're are treating. some exceptional cases where perhaps the risk uh, is greater than the benefit. And Katie and others of us are working together at a, a, an algorithm to get an app to work out the, the benefits and harms where you trade off the additional risk of uh, breast cancer, additional risk of thrombosis versus quality of life. Uh, osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, and so on. So that was Professor Michael Baum, who came into the studio with his daughter, Katie Taylor, who runs a really fantastic website and Facebook group called The Larche Lounge. And she told us about her own menopause experience and how she really struggled with the symptoms um, and didn't have a clue what was going on. And it was actually her father who diagnosed it for her. So that was a that was a really nice story. Yeah, it was great to hear them together. That was uh, an episode in series one of Postcards from Midlife. So do have a listen to the whole interview if you want to hear more from Michael and Katie. 
Now, struggling with sleep in midlife just makes everything else 10 times worse, doesn't it, Lorraine? Yes, it does. It does indeed. It makes me very cross. Oh, gosh. So whether you're waking up due to hot flushes or anxiety because you're worrying about your kids, your job, your bank balance, or because you need to go to the loo, there is nothing worse than lying awake for hours trying to get back to sleep knowing you've got another exhausting day ahead of you. It's absolutely exhausting. It was one of the worst <laughs> symptoms for me. Um, sudden insomnia, having been a person that could go to bed at 10 o'clock and sleep right the way through uninterrupted, apart from when I had children, um, till seven o'clock in the morning. So so many women talk to us about it so so many of them we decided to speak to sleep psychologist Catherine Pinkham from the insomnia clinic on how to properly put an end to sleepless nights she had some amazing strategies and they were so different from everything I've ever read about how to get a good night's sleep The, the way that insomnia develops is that for whatever reason, even for somebody who's not in menopause, something triggers the odd night of poor sleep. So it could be um, stress, uh, you know, a cough and a cold, a bit of noise next door, something on your mind, or it could be a hot flush or the beginnings of um, your hormonal changes. And what happens is we are pretty intolerant to poor sleep. So fairly quickly, we, we focus on it, we become quite vigilant about it and we want to improve it. So for any of us, after three or four nights of poor sleep, we're, we're looking to fix it. So the first thing we do is we, we go to bed earlier. Um, we try and get more opportunity for sleep. So we would uh, get up later. We would um, perhaps have a nap if we could. And the problem with those kind of changes is that what we're doing there is we're altering our, our body clock and our sleep drive. We're sort of starting to interfere in those things. And as, as time goes on, what these ladies are finding is that they're waking up regularly through the night because of hot flushes. So they're spending more and more time in bed trying to get more sleep. They're getting less. And now they're spending so much time in bed awake, frustrated, feeling panicked, that actually the relationship with bed has become very fractured. So in order to sleep well, one of the things that's the most important is our sleep drive. So if you think of an elastic band, uh, when you wake up in the morning, we start stretching that elastic band, it gets tighter and tighter and tighter as the day goes on. And ideally we want that band to be as tight as it can be. Then we get into bed, we fall asleep quickly and we take back the whole debt that we've been building up through the day. But when that sleep drive starts to falter is when we're being woken, for example, by hot flushes. And then suddenly we're feeling really tired during the day because we were woken. So maybe we go to bed a bit earlier, maybe we get up a bit later. And then you can see that actually we're starting to spend perhaps- Lose the elasticity of the day, we, yeah. We lose the momentum. So we, you know, I have, I've worked with ladies who are spending, you know, nine, 10, 11 hours in bed, but asleep for, you know, four or five of those. The first thing that I always do with, with people is sort of the behavioral stuff. So um, making sure that we are going to bed a bit later, getting up a little bit earlier. So, so minimizing time in bed so that it's more likely to have that high drive. And although for people that can feel quite anxiety provoking because they're thinking, well, I don't want to get less sleep. Now you're telling me to go to bed less. Actually, it's about doing the opposite to what we think we need to do. Strengthen that drive and the quality of your sleep will improve. But the most important thing for these ladies as well is, is as you say, their problem is often waking in the night. And so what do we do to stop this connection being made with our bed about anxiety and, and panic? And um, there's a couple of things that, that I always get people to, to do. The first one is, if you are wide awake, hot and bothered, panicked, stressed, not remotely you know, sleepy, then, then leave the bedroom. Don't stay in bed when you're feeling that way. And it's, it's really hard for people to do that because yeah. actually... 
they're already shattered. They don't want to give up on the possibility of having more sleep. But actually, whilst you remain in bed, your chances of falling asleep are pretty slim. And what you're doing is you're continuing to build this relationship with bed that isn't about sleep. It's about being wide awake, fractious, irritated, tossed, hot and bothered and tossing and turning. So you leave the bedroom, you go downstairs. I don't at all sign up for that you have to do something boring. Um, you, you do what you enjoy. If you enjoy reading, read. If you want to watch TV, do something that actually just takes your mind off the fact that you're not asleep. Just enjoy doing something else. And when you feel sleepy and you're a little bit calmer, you go back to bed. Whatever happens, you try and still get up with your alarm in the morning. It's really important for this sleep drive to get up. And I, and I know that you know people won't feel like doing that. It's the last thing you want to do. But we're looking longer term here. You know, let's improve yeah. the quality and then we can get more of it. But during the day, it's, it's vital that we deal with how we feel about this sleep problem. Because it will come back. You can, we can try and ignore it all day. But at night time, it comes back and it sort of sabotages your, your mind. And that's that racing mind thing. So in the daytime, it's really important, pen and paper, 20 minutes a day, just to write down all of your worries about sleep, all the reasons why it matters. You know, not getting enough sleep means a different thing to, to different people. And if you have this sort of core belief that actually if I don't sleep well, I'm a bad parent or I can't do my job well, that's fueling this issue. It's creating more and more stress. So sometimes it's just about, um, and I work with people a lot on this, it's just working out why does it matter so much to you and how, and how are those thoughts helping you? How can we take the sting out of it a little bit? How can we learn to just accept that, yes, it's not ideal and, and no, you probably won't sleep as well as you did in your, in your 20s, but actually you are going to cope and you will be okay and you do still have good days even when you haven't slept well. And getting people to sort of take some of the focus and the vigilance away from sleep because then when they go to bed, um, and as long as they're kind of keeping this stronger drive and they're managing these thoughts, they can start to feel less stressed. The less stressed we feel, the better the sleep becomes. One of the other pieces of advice that Catherine gave, which wasn't actually in that clip, which um, I thought was really great, was um, don't look at the clock. And also, when you wake up, don't just automatically go to the loo. And these are both things that I always do. It's like I'm almost coming out of my sleep and I'm practically on the way to the toilet before I've even woken up properly. And um, so I stopped doing that. And guess what? I, I don't need to go to the loo. It's just become a habit. And I found myself getting back to sleep probably within about 15, 20 minutes, which is, and, and then getting back into a really deep sleep. So yeah, so I'm not going to the loo anymore, Lorraine. Do you know what my habit was at my worst insomnia? It's terrible. E eating chocolate. Biscuit. Oh, biscuit. <laughs> I was nearly there. <laughs> what, getting up for a biscuit? I was getting up and going downstairs and thinking I'll have oh. an anti-anxiety hobnob. That's what will help oh. me. And But I, again, had created the eating in the night pattern. Oh, I see. Yes, and your waist wasn't thanking you for that. No, it's quite noisy eating a biscuit in the <laughs> quiet of the house as well. There's something very oddly melancholy about you it. Anyway, don't, don't want to wake the dog up. No, I didn't want to wake that crazy dog up. Mm. So we have now arrived at the last section of this special World Menopause Day episode. And we thought we'd finish off with sex and relationships. Because let's face it, if you're anything like us, your libido may have gone AWOL during your perimenopause um, and your partner's probably at the bottom of your to-do list or is driving you nuts um, because they're you're not relating as you used to in that intimate way 
someone told me the other day that she's so cross with her husband that she can't bear him breathing. I felt very sorry <laughs> for him. <laughs> but there's nothing he can do about that. No. Anyway, we thought we'd go to an expert to talk about sex and relationships. So we talked to the columnist Susie Godson, who is the Times Sex and Relationship columnist, about keeping intimacy going in a long-term relationship. The longer you leave it, the harder it is because it it, it starts to become the elephant in the room and rather than admit that there's this huge, big, grey animal coming between you, people just avoid the issue. And the only way to get past it is to sit down and say to each other, look, it's been ages, do you want to have sex? I think we should, even if we feel weird, even if it feels clumsy and awkward. All lights out. Yeah, let's just give it a go. And I think you have to just be straightforward with each other. I don't think there's any easy way beyond that. And once you clear the air, it suddenly becomes much easier. One of the other issues to be aware of is certainly as men get older, there's all sorts of sexual problems and they're really bad at talking about them. Yes. And they're really bad at addressing them. And so instead of tackling the issue, they just stop having sex. And that's really, really unhelpful. And also, so many of the male problems are very, very easy to fix. And female issues are more difficult to fix. Well, they won't go to the doctor either, so getting a man to go... No, absolutely not. And and so that's why openness is the kind of number one priority. And, And people really struggle with that because, you know, no one ever teaches us how to talk about sex. I mean, no one ever teaches us how to have sex, but, you know, the the fundamental root of all kind of intimacy is being Mm. able to be open with each other. I think any couple that sort of makes a conscious decision to invest in their sex life, things are going to get better. But one thing I can can reveal is that um, I had terrible problems with my husband and we went in and did some counselling together. And it was incredible. It was like we came, we went through this process and because we were talking really intently about loads of stuff, our sex life just went through the roof. And more closer. I, you were yeah, closer. Yeah, it yeah. was amazing. And I think I just think I do think that what happens is you take each other for granted, distance, you know, you just feel a bit distant from each other and you you lose that connection. But when you actually start to really focus on each other and focus on your relationship and you take that into bed it really changes everything I mean you can do all the you know the tricks and you can get all the toys but ultimately the most amazing sex is when you're totally intently focused on each other and the experience and that only comes from you know deciding that you want to be with each other in every single sense of the word mm-hmm. there's no magic solution and that's why sex is the first thing to go when a relationship is breaking down and it is the hardest thing to get back to bring back mm, but yes. if you make the decision that you are together this is who you are as a couple it makes a kind of step change and that will often happen at around this time of life because this is a time when women are, you know, they're older, their kids are growing up, so they're starting to think about themselves in an autonomous way that they haven't before. Not so much a mother. You're not a mother and you might decide at this time of life that you don't want to be a wife either and sometimes you're not a daughter anymore as well because you're, you've got ageing parents or your parents are dying. So for women, it's a very, very critical time point and it is the, t- the point 
in a woman's life where she will decide either I'm in or I'm out and if she and if she's in she will go back in with a bang and then that's why sex can become incredible Better. yeah Some really helpful advice there from Susie, I think really useful. Um, but we also invited Dr. Shasadi Harper back onto series two to discuss some of the physical issues that can get in the way of a great sex life when you are perimenopausal and in your midlife. She begins by talking about our poor old pelvic floors. Some of the symptoms to look out for, for example, are if you cough, sneeze, you leak, you may feel a dragging sensation down there. You may just feel things aren't quite in place. You may even feel something coming out, you know, that's prolapse for you. So um, what I would say is just go to your GP and say, look, I'm having to get up in the night frequently or I can't hold my wee in. When I cough and sneeze, I'm leaking. Some women, even during sex, end up peeing. Or they can physically say it just feels like there's something down there. Something's dragging down there. And so the GP, um, what I expect they would do is to do an examination. And that examination entails just having a look, then doing an internal, which is popping your fingers as a GP. You know, you pop your fingers inside the vagina, obviously wearing gloves, and you may get somebody to cough and sneeze so you can see if um, any of those pelvic organs come down. Um, and we know that, that a lot of women Google rather than going to see their GPs about these things, but they shouldn't and they shouldn't put up with it. I mean, some of it is, I think, um, hormone deficiencies like estrogen will affect the physical changes, like the um, sort of plumpness of the vagina, the lubrication aspect. But then that hormone testosterone also helps with libido and the um, sort of strength of orgasm. So, you know, sex is not great for a lot of women at that point because physically it hurts because even penetration can be uncomfortable and then sliding, gliding, you know, intercourse itself is uncomfortable. Um, so that's one thing. And also psychologically, you just may not be in the mood because your testosterone levels are a bit low. I would definitely say testosterone helps a lot and the NICE guidelines does recommend it for low libido. When I talk about vaginal health, orgasms are great for vaginal health because they improve your circulation, your blood flow, help stimulate those cells. Um, and you don't have to be with a partner to get those mm. orgasms. So, um, you know, I very much talk to women about it, talk to them about maybe a sex toy, a slimline sex toy, because sometimes if you've not had sex for a while, the other thing that tends to happen is your vagina can shrink a little bit. It's a shame because I think you can have a real new awakening at this time. You know, a lot of women feel liberated or feel they've got nothing to lose. And I mean, you can actually be the person that you wanted to be, you know, all those years. That brings us to the end of this special episode of Postcards from Midlife. Now, if you've listened to all the episodes in both series before, we hope that this was a helpful recap. And if you haven't heard the full episodes from series one and two, they are on the Times Radio app or they are on your usual podcast provider. We've got episodes that look at hair, nutrition, wellness, almost everything in midlife. So do give those a go. And remember, you are not alone. We'd love you to join our Facebook group. Follow us on Instagram or email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. We'll be back for series three in November. And in the meantime, we'd like to thank all of you for listening and helping us to get menopause and the lives of midlife women out there being talked about. 
Let's give the final word to one of our lovely listeners who said, Thank God for these podcasts. I've learned more from the work of Lorraine Candy and Trish Halpern about what the heck is going on with me than any other resource I've turned to, including two GPs who tried to put me on antidepressants. Now to convince my husband that the perimenopause is R-E-A-L, real. Indeed. Well, what you might want to do is get him to listen back to some of the episodes, as uh, my friend told me her husband (laughs) has been doing so, and giving her advice from us. So that's quite good, isn't it? But we will be back with Series 3 very soon in about a month's time. Look out for details on our uh, Instagram and on our Facebook group. And we're going to have loads of brilliant guests, new formats, uh, more nostalgia noodlings, because we know they're a favourite. In the meantime, have a great few weeks. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.